Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Stolen sperm, forced paternity, and patents on human bone marrow? Today, we'll take a look at the bizarre intersection of property law and biological material. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today, as we discuss biological material, our guest is one of the luminaries of the field, Professor Glenn Cohen from Harvard Law School. Thanks for having me, Joel. Why don't we jump right in? When we're talking about owning biological material, what does that even mean? So it turns out, over the course of the day, this cup that I'm sipping from skin cells you're shedding, all throughout the day you're shedding a lot of your genetic material and other kinds of materials. What happens to the saliva I've left on this cup after we're done with this filming? Can Could I you... take it and run a, a full genetic analysis on you? Exactly, right? So there's a series of questions about this. And for the most part, the law hasn't given people a lot of property interest in their discarded genetic material. There's a famous case, the Moore case, out of California several years ago, but still one of the leading precedents involving a patient who undergoes treatment for uh, leukemia. And in the course of the treatment, the doctor realizes that his leukocytes, he has hairy cell leukocytes, they're particularly valuable. And so takes tissue from the patient over a period of time and eventually commercializes it and creates a cell line and creates a product out of it. And the question- So here, the, the, the doctor sees something in the genetics, in, in the tissue of his patient that he, he sees he can make money off of. Exactly, right? And it turns out many of us may have uh, cells that are particularly valuable. There's a very famous case of a woman named Henrietta Lacks, whose cells became the HeLa cells, which were used by medical schools and by researchers and uh, products across uh, the world for about 50 years or so, right? So some of us have material that's particularly useful. And in this case, this guy, Mr. Moore, his doctor basically every time he came in and sometimes made him come back, he had moved from California, said to him essentially, uh, I want to take your tissue. It didn't say I want to take it because I want to, to commercialize a product out of it. So Moore eventually finds out and he sues and he says, I want to get some of the money you're making in this product you're doing, right? Seems fair. It's his tissue. It seems fair as his tissue, although you might say a lot of the property we have, when you think about property, what gives us an interest in property? You know, the old Lockean conception is with physical property, I've mixed my labor into it, right? I've worked sweat equity. Well, here, if you happen to have genes that are particularly useful or hairy cell leukocytes, it's not like you've done anything to develop them, right? You've just kind of given them. So why should you, in particular, benefit? Well, isn't it just like the same argument at the Lucky Sperm Club? You might have been born into a wealthy family. You might have been born with particularly valuable genes. Yeah, you might have very good genes. And, you know, it's one thing to say, maybe I have to induce you to give them up to donate sperm. But if you are... Uh, the, uh, the, let's say you are the repository of particularly good genes. Why should you in particular be the one to benefit from it? Why not think about them as part of the commons, for example? Now that's not what happened here. This guy extracted them, changed them, commercialized them. But you might say like, I mean, think about your face for a moment. Imagine I walk down the street and I say, God, that's a beautiful face. If only. If only, well, <laughs> you never know. I walk down the street and say, I want that face. And imagine I go to my, um, cosmetic surgeon, and I say, give me his face. Wow, does this happen? I like the Glenn Cohen face. Well, you know, stand in line for it. It turns out there was actually an MTV 
a series, very short-lived, called I Want a Famous Face, where individuals got cosmetic surgery to look like their favorite celebrity. There's one episode with Brad Pitt, actually, right? With a celebrity, there is actually protection and rights of publicity, and there's an idea that you've earned your kind of reputation and your celebrity, and if someone else could just copy and pretend to be you, well, that would be a problem. But if you're just a regular person on the street, and someone really likes your face, right, should they be allowed to copy it, right? Wait, so you're saying perhaps I can't get the Brad Pitt face, but I could get you know, the Joel Cohen face if I was someone else because you know, I'm not famous? Well, what's to prevent them from doing it? What body of law prevents it? Do you have a property interest in your face, right? Now again, there's something inherently creepy about the idea of bumping into someone who looks exactly like right. yourself. But imagine, you know, just imagine you had a particularly beautiful face. And essentially, uh, it turns out that the world will benefit greatly if many people copy your face. Right? So there's a lot of benefits to be gained. What's your objection? What's the nature of your objection to it? Maybe the answer is it's your personhood, right? You identify your personhood with your face. And this is a theory of property. We begin with the idea of self-ownership. If there's anything we own, it's our persons. That's why there's a prohibition on slavery. So your face, you might say, is very close to your personhood. But what about your genes? Is that closer or less close to mm. your personhood, right? They're not visible in the way your face is, not gonna be confused for you. But in some ways, they're the building blocks of exactly who you are, although those building blocks are much more similar from person to person, maybe, than faces to face. And I think it's probably less inherently objectionable if I happen to have really healthy kidneys and there's this notion that, you know, if my genes can be used to help others have healthier kidneys, you know, what would be, what would be the downside? For right, that? it might be seem too selfish to withhold your uh, genes if it could be commercialized into a product that will help many people, whereas it might seem as though the benefit of sharing your face is an aesthetic value of some kind, right? Why don't we start with what the current basis of the law is? So you drank out of this glass. Yes. And so it has your DNA on yes. it. I can, if you leave this building and you don't take this with yes. you, I can then run analysis on you, so I can there's some, use the genes? Yeah, there's some states that have tried to prohibit this, but for the most part, the general law in the United States is certainly the police can run that through their CODIS database and determine whether I'm a perpetrator of a crime. There's nothing to stop that. And in fact, there's very little in general to prevent you from sequencing my genes if it's discarded material. And one of my favorite examples of this, it turns out to be a very clever criminal investigation. They thought this guy was the perpetrator. And what they did is they mailed him an envelope uh, with a return envelope to join a class action. He licked it, the saliva, and they tested the saliva and then were able to say he was the perpetrator in this thing, right? So How tricky. How tricky, right? Smart lawyering there. So in terms of forensics, right, there's very little in place to prevent you. Now some uses of that information are prohibited by law. So for example, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act prohibits an employer or an insurer from discriminating you against you in this basis. Some of the existing anti-discrimination law, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, might prohibit something. There may also be some kinds of privacy laws that prohibit certain uses. But actually taking this discarded material is a different matter. And in terms of ownership, back to this Moore case for a moment, so he sued, and he sued the doctor, and he brought a theory of lack of informed consent and breach of fiduciary duty. The court agreed with them on lack of informed consent. They said, you should have had to disclose this to the patient. Anything that would be material, uh, that's the standard, right? That would help a patient make a decision. They said, Plus, this is relevant. Plus, in that case, he's taking samples for no medical reason. Right. It seems... 
Well, although wrong. at least the early samples were taken just because it's part of the treatment. The later samples, it was a little bit less clear. But certainly the early samples, even that, they say if you're treating the patient, you have the second commercial motive in mind, that's something you need to tell the patient. So that's lack of informed consent. So, you know, but that doesn't get you a lot of money. The more powerful claim he had was a theory of kind of conversion, that they stole this, right? The civil version of theft. And here the court really struggled. It said, let's look at some precedents. We don't really have conversion liability here. And the court was really afraid of deterring the biotech industry, and this was in the 80s. So ultimately the court said, you don't have a good cause of action in California for conversion. You get your breach of informed consent, that won't get you a lot of damages. You don't get a share of these royalties. How much payments. money were we talking about here? It was a significant product, right? I mean, it was being sold, it was being commercialized. I don't know if they gave a dollar figure, not that I can remember, but we were talking about at least hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars in a share, right? But I mean, think about it. If it turns out you leave your saliva here, I take that saliva and I use it to invent something that helps cure a form of cancer, to use an extreme example, right? Do you think you're entitled to a share of that? Should you be entitled to a share of that? I don't know. That's the question we're talking right. about today. I personally wouldn't, I don't think it's intuitive that I would have a share, but I could certainly imagine a regime, a regime that would reward the creator, I guess, of the, of the DNA or the biological material. And these days I'll say, in every biomedical study where tissue is collected, we have these things now called biorepositories for biospecimens. So much of the, many of the times you've gone in to get a blood test, for example, you've probably never thought about what happened to your blood after it's gone. But certainly, you're part of a research study where we're testing a drug or something like that. Every piece of tissue we take from you is being stored. And there are large biorepositories of a human tissue of different kinds. Now these days, you almost always are asked to sign an informed consent that somewhere in it will say, uh, actually, it turns out you're relinquishing all commercial rights and interests. Even but if you didn't have any. Even if you didn't have any. But it's belt and suspenders, right? Because they're worried that the court in that jurisdiction might feel differently. Maybe they had a, they had a proper lawyer on that study. Right. But the question is whether this is good enough for the broad blanket statement, right? Would it bother you if I used your genetic material for some kinds of uses you might not be comfortable with? So there was this case involving the Havasupai tribe, uh, which I think in Arizona, New Mexico, a First Nations and Indian tribe, and essentially they used their genetic materials to look for connections to schizophrenia and depression, and which were threatening in some ways to the creation myth of these people as well. And it was an interesting question about whether that's a specific use. Would it be enough to say, I may use your genetic material for research, not specify more, or should I have to specify if I think it's something that's going to upset you in particular? And in this case, was there some additional credence given to the, the I mean, argument? The, there was some additional credence given to the argument, given that it was disruptive of kind of their creation myth and culturally kind of insensitive. But it's one of the few examples where we've had a really public debate on this. That and the Henrietta Lacks case, where this poor black woman in Baltimore, uh, you know, from almost half a century ago, essentially her cells are harvested when she comes in with a cancer diagnosis. She gets terrible health care. And these cells end up forming the backbone for huge amounts of scientific research. And her family sees none of it. They get no credit for her. And uh, Rebecca Skloot wrote this book, The Brief Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which yeah, is about this. Yeah, the Immortal Life book. of Henrietta Lacks. It has Lacks. something to do with the reproduction. Yeah, of, the cells of just cells and... basically continue to reproduce in a way that most cells don't have this property. So her, her DNA had created some, some genius, incredibly valuable asset 
that she never saw. Right, although notice that you're using active verbs in the way you've constructed that sentence, right? <laughs> it created as though there was effort involved rather than just was, right? And that's part of the tension here. The more you think about this as passive, this is just what I've been born of. I didn't work. My parents gave this to me and their parents gave it to them, yada, 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 all the way backwards. The less you seem to think that we need intellectual property here. The more you think about this as really deeply entwined with my personhood, the more I tend to think you think you ought to have some kind of ownership or control over the material. So here so far, we've talked about ownership in the sense of having access to the value created by that product. Let's take a look at biological material and the privacy issues involved. Why don't we use the glass as an example as well. As DNA testing is getting cheaper and cheaper, it's gonna become a lot more easy for companies, you know, direct marketers, right. whatever, for whatever reason, to be able to run information. So I take this glass, I'm able to see you're predisposed to one or two conditions, then I can start marketing drugs towards you. You, have, you happen to have a, a famous ancestor, I'm gonna start targeting yeah. you know, ancestry.com ads towards you. So you know, 23andMe, which is one of the progenitors, the first companies that try to bring whole genome sequencing down to the $99 or cheaper market, basically this kind of sequencing for the world. They ran into some problems with the FDA, but that's another story for another time. They actually required to you when you submitted your sample to sign a box saying that you submit that it's your own sample rather than someone else's. Now that's not a huge protection, right? You could go out and do it. But they also had a research arm whereby you could consent, and most people did automatically enroll, and they actually shared 500,000 or something like that of their samples with Pfizer to try to develop new drugs and the like. So there's also a question about whether how much genetic surveillance is going on. As I said, in the insurance context, we have some legal protections against discrimination. In the employment context, we have some legal protections against discrimination. But in many other contexts, we don't. And there's that famous scene from Gattaca where they're going on a date, uh, Ethan Hawke and with Thurman, he plucks a hair out of his head and gives it to her and says, why don't you go sequence that? Because this is the way we relate to each other in the Gattaca era, right? We Let's have to see know if we're actually compatible. compatible. Exactly, right? genetically compatible. You know, so a lot of this depends on having a strong identification with our genes, right? There's so much that shapes us. Take identical twins, identical genes. And by the way, interesting question about whether one twin, one twin can, can, can give away exactly, the knee, Or whether we need to have things about this one. a tendency in common or something like that about property. But identical twins are you know, genetically the same, but we don't think of them as being interchangeable. We think their experience shapes a lot of what their lives are like. So maybe we just need to get away from a strong conception of genetic determinism here, that we are our genes. So the, I guess the short answer to my question is what? Do you have any privacy right to your DNA if you're leaving it behind? So you have very little. And in fact, in the Fourth Amendment police context, there's a famous case about leaving garbage on your uh, on your doorstep, and the court said, well, you left the garbage, you discarded it, you didn't maintain a possessory interest. And courts have used the same reasoning when it's come to saliva on a cup or a water bottle as well in the Fourth Amendment context. But is that really connected? I mean, you, you can't go through life without leaving genetic material. You can certainly go through life without littering. Right. No, again, if the question is, can I control my shedding of genetic material, unless you're gonna wear a hazmat suit 24-7, you're not gonna be able to. Right? You're leaking that kind of data all the time. But on the other hand, we leak all kinds of other data. Think about your phone and the geolocating and how much Apple and others know about you. In some ways, you might think that that's a much easier to tap 
much more on the surface kind of information about you and your habits or your Amazon browsing history or you know, your web browsing history than is what you've left here on the, on, the, on, the, on the cup. I'm not so sure because when you think of what are the most important areas of our, of our data of our, about us that are kept private, it's health. Mm -hmm. And if you can take a little bit of saliva and I can find out you know, your alleles are run down right. because you're stressed or you know, you're predisposed to certain type of mental illness right. or well, things that you might not want. Or, or you know, maybe if, you're, if you have a certain contagious disease. Right, or, although this will mostly tell you about genotype, not phenotype, right? What your genes say, not what the current expression or where you are and things, right? Take your example of mental health. So maybe you'll learn that I'm within this band of risk for schizophrenia. Not all mental illnesses are genetically well understood, but schizophrenia is a good example where we know a lot about the genes, right? If I look at your browsing history and I had access to your browsing history for the last five years, I might be able to make an even more educated guess about whether you're suffering from schizophrenia than I would. Because I'm searching, I am the king, why am I the king, well, why or, am I not the or king? Well, I was thinking more mental health needs and stuff like that and support and information about schizophrenia and the like. This is not to say, you know, one answer is that we should be protecting both kinds of data. I just want to kind of push a little bit against the genetic exceptionalism that views this kind of information as something so important. You know, in the 90s, there was all this stuff, my genes are my, my future diary, like going into your diary. But the reality, you know, genes tell us a lot about a person, but so do many other things, including their browsing history, their iPhone, their geolocation, uh, what other people around them say. So I wouldn't totally exceptionalize the genetic information. How about well, one month from now, you get an email inviting you to a special group of intellectuals because someone analyzed your DNA and found out that you're predisposed to a higher level of intellectual. So, you know, how would I feel about that? I mean, to me, it's... Welcome, I'm, I'm, I've arrived. <laughs> exactly, immensely, yes. <laughs> I've been waiting all my life for this. No, I mean, but to me, so I think that one of the interesting things is, again, to push back on the exceptionalism. There's a much easier way to figure it out. It's just to let's say, let's look at SAT scores. Let's look yeah, at let's where you went to high Google school. Google his name, and he's a professor well, at well, Harvard. That so helps, too. So although, you know, there's no guarantee that that means that I'm smart. It just means that I've been successful. But this is just to say that the profiling is disturbing, uh, but so is mo many other kinds of profiling. In some ways, you might say it's the less accurate forms of profiling that should bother us more uh, compared to the more accurate ones, right? Think about all the snap judgments we make about people that are based on, uh, you know, on stereotypes. Think about racial profiling, for example. Uh, wouldn't it be better if you're going to do profiling to do it on a basis that's more scientific, more validative? Although I might not like either kind of profiling. I can certainly imagine that there could be some kind of list mm -hmm. that would say, you know, these are individuals who tested whose DNA tested as highly likely for a certain horrible uh, genetic disorder, yep. which could then change your, your dating abilities, yep. might limit your ability to find a partner. Is that something that is okay? Is that something that's yeah. constitutionally appropriate? Yeah, well, so um, you know, my own view on this is the following, is that we should empower people to have information. We should empower people to disclose their information. There is a question about whether there could be liability if you fail to disclose it. So there are cases about uh, transmission of HIV. There's a case about Rocky Mountain spotted fever, actually. 
and whether you need to warn a spouse of an individual about a condition. Is that a dangerous a condition? condition? It turns out it is a dangerous condition. There's a case, uh, one of the case books that I, that I work on, where the person died because the, the, the wife died because they failed to tell the wife that the husband had been diagnosed with this contagious with kind Rocky of fever. Mountain spotted, spotted fever. fever. It's, just, it's fun to say. That's probably why it ended up in the yeah, case book. It sounds yeah. like something that you would give a couple of bumps and go away. Exactly. So in any event, um, there is this question about whether there would be an obligation to disclose. And there have been cases where a parent is diagnosed with a heritable form of cancer, and the question is whether the doctor has an obligation to disclose uh, to, the, to the parent that they should tell the child, or even to tell the child themselves. And when the child uh, comes of age, comes sick, if there's something that could have been done on the forefront, uh, can the doctor be held liable for failing to disclose? In general, the law tends to have a different view about imminent dangers as opposed to kind of more latent Long -term dangers. Risk. Uh, but in HIV criminalization, it has been kind of this thing where there are some states that have tried to criminalize the transmission of HIV, the knowing transmission without disclosure. And maybe procreation that had an imminent danger, if you knew you had this and you failed to disclose, it may be that you should face a similar liability. Although in the HIV context, things have been well shown that this doesn't serve us well, it discourages people from getting tested, it's not effective. So I don't know what it would be like in the genetic context. It's also a little bit different that one may be a direct threat to the other person, whereas the other is, you know, perhaps if we have children, it could be. Well, it might depend. Issue. Like, you know, think about something like Tay-Sachs, for example, where, you know, one possibility might be you might be held liable if you proc procreated, knowing that your procreation would cause a child to experience significant suffering. Now, there, there's this interesting problem that if you didn't procreate, well, that child never would have existed. And so the baseline against which to view harm is complicated. And then the court has to get into the business of saying that this child is, in fact, an injury. Exactly. And, and you know, there's plenty who would argue that even a short life, a exactly. painful life, might be a, a worthwhile and, and, one. And in the U.S., at least, they've mostly rejected these kinds of wrongful life theories of liability. I think all but three states have rejected them. Elsewhere in the world, though, there are cases where they've held that in case of serious injury, the child could potentially sue the parent or sue the doctor for creating this situation. So far we've been talking about the everyday material that we leave behind. Let's transition into something a little bit more personal, and that's sperm. And this is an area where the courts have been a little bit more involved, people have been a little bit more involved, partly because it's material that is more valuable or material that has more uses. Yeah, definitely more material, at least, that I think we have more of an identification with. Although it's interesting, it's anthropological to some extent. For example, in the Trobriand Islands, they don't think of sperm or the father as creating the child. They believe that the father, through sex, opens up a passageway where the mother's ancestral spirit, the Boloma, descends into the mother, and that's how uh, children are born, right? So this is, in part, I mean, genetically true, sperm creates babies. But there's also a whole anthropological way in which we think about producing the sperm as creating a child. I'll just say one more anecdote about this, which is fascinating. There was the story about uh, identical twins. One brother was born uh, with a disorder such that his testicles were not fully formed. And uh, as a result, he couldn't produce sperm. So he wanted to get his wife pregnant. And what he did was they actually transplanted a testicle from his identical twin to him so that he could produce a child and create a child. As opposed to just taking a sperm sample 
from his brother. From a genetic perspective, it's identical, right? Why go through all this? But from our psychological and anthropological perspective, it seems to be really important that we be the ones producing the sperm to produce this child. Even though, genetically speaking, the sperm of my identical twin and the sperm of myself are, for all intents and purposes, interchangeable. Let alone the fact that you're actually using part of your identical exactly. twin's anatomy but to produce it. But somehow attaching it to my body now makes it feel like mine or that I'm doing the work, which is kind of interesting. So within the realm of sperm, what are, are there different rules for ownership or is it exactly the same as the, the hair follicle that you leave behind? Yeah, so there are different rules in part because there's an interface between the family law system of paternity and declaring legal parentage versus the cells. Although I should say, that we now have technology which, uh, in theory, could let us turn adult stem cells uh, from skin, for example, into spermatozoa. So we could try to create sperm from skin that we left over. In theory, we can do this. We've done this with animals already, actually. So maybe so the sign... So the line may be blurring. The, so. the line may be, yeah. So but thinking about this, so there's one case, only one case I know of in which this has actually come up in the US context. And actually, I, I like to say, I had the distinction, this was my, I talked about it in my job talk at Harvard, and I began with this case, so it's the only time that a Harvard Law School job talk has began with an, an account of oral sex gone wrong. So the alleged facts of this case, Phillips v. Irons, is that this woman and this man, they were both doctors, they were having an affair, he purposefully limited himself to oral sex with her because he was paranoid about getting her pregnant. She allegedly, it was in a 12 v. 6 setting, so all the facts are alleged, she allegedly 12B6. Sorry, 12B6, a motion to dismiss setting for a claim. So that the court is not passing on the truth of the uh, allegation. The but court instead, assumes that all the facts as alleged are true by the plaintiff, right? And gives it reasonable interments and stuff like that, state law. So he alleged that in the course of oral sex, she retained the semen in her mouth and then excused herself, deposited it in a vial, and then used it to self-inseminate and had a baby and then sued him for paternity. The dangers of dating a doctor? The dangers of dating a doctor, perhaps. Well, the lawyers are pretty slippery, no pun intended, <laughs> as well. Uh, so what happened was he sues her on two theories, one of conversion, again, civil version of theft, the other intentional infliction of emotional distress. All right, a quick break for our MCLE code for lawyers who are getting credit for this interview. The code is 082216. Quickly, it is 082216. And now back to the interview. So let's take them one at yeah. a time. Conversion, here we're talking about he's going to court saying she stole my sperm. Exactly. And the court said no. You presumably, after you ejaculated, you had no intention of maintaining a possessory or property interest in the sperm, and that is a requirement of conversion that it has to be your property, and you relinquish the property when so you discard it. So here was either a gift or an abandonment of property. Right. And then, so in that case, they said you can't sue her for stealing your sperm. In terms of inflict, intentional infliction of emotional distress, they did say you might have a good theory on that. Let's have some more uh, factual development to go there. And do we know how that I think the, so that the case, there's no report of the case after that decision. They may have settled or the like. But I also know that he was charged with paternity and he could not get out of paternity. So he had to pay 
child support in any event, even though the allegation was his sperm was used in a way that most of us would think would not be uh, a way to make a baby, right? So there is this one reported case in the literature on the subject. And then there are many more cases which we can talk about, about people who intend to be sperm donors to a friend and the like. But in terms of something that really doesn't look like insemination, this is the one case I've ever encountered on the subject. This case is pretty bizarre in and of itself, but we could certainly imagine as the technology steps forward, the implications could change. So you're a, you know, a, a very successful, bright mind, right. and, and I'm you know, hypothetically trying to to find a donor for to, to create a child, why don't I take this glass, bring it down to the lab, and then see if I can yeah. have... Yeah, and so there's a technique called in vitro gametogenesis, which is exactly doing exactly this, from adult stem cells, coaxing them to become spermatozoa cells. Uh, and currently, uh, women, in theory, has never been authorized to be done in human beings, we've done it in animal models. Two women could have a child this way, coaxing one's uh, skin cells to be a sperm, and use that to inseminate the other woman's eggs. With men, because we don't carry both chromosomes, we probably can't, can't, can't do that uh, from our genetic material, but it's possible we'll find a way to do it uh, now. And again, we've only done this with animals now, but this is just to say that this is within the realm of possibility that we would be able to do this in the foreseeable future. And once you're able to do that, there's all sorts of interesting questions that get raised, right? Do we think about that the same way as the sperm theft case, or do we think it's too many steps removed? What is my connection to my adult stem cells and the child that is produced from them? Is it like my connection to my sperm, or is it like my connection, not like my connection at all? And by the way, also some interesting implications for uh, abortion, right, is you might think that if we could actually develop fetuses out of adult stem cells, would we say that every adult stem cell has the potential to become a fetus? And if you believe in potentiality arguments against destroying stem cells or destroying embryos, it gets very complicated at this stage. Well, that would make getting rid of any tissue at some level become complex. And as you said, every day we're shedding huge amounts of tissue all the time. So it really can't be that's the case. But it makes it even scarier to think not only could you use my saliva to do genetic information and get data, but to actually produce a child who is genetically related to me. You've reached the end of part one of this interview. Be sure to check out part two for the rest of the conversation. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.